Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, guys. Happy Friday. Welcome. Uh, welcome to our space. We're going to do something a little different today. I'd like to welcome... Texas Lindsay, please follow her. She's doing great work with medical whistleblowers. She's also a consultant and advisor to people within the uh, medical and, and science technology uh, intersection. So please follow her work on Substack as well. Make sure you're following her on Twitter. Also, Ten Foil Tricorn, who is my uh, one of my regular uh, co-hosts, as well as Christopher Marino, who is over in the speaker um, position. He's at the kids' table. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, my. So I uh, just wrapped a, a hit that will air today at 4 p.m. So I will not uh, – we will not be on here long, okay? But but I wanted to honor your uh, – our commitment to you and your commitment to us to actually uh, show up for these spaces, which are extremely informative with this series that we're doing titled – Risk factor, why COVID was made. Very important words there. Why and made, right? And we've gone over that. In the first episode, uh, we were discussing bio uh, warfare and pandemics, right? So so this is bio warfare uh, should tell you that that this is not by accident. So we can at least lay that to rest, right? And the, the purpose of this of this series is not only for Dr. Andrew Hoff to present his findings, facts, experiences, along with experts that he's bringing um, into these spaces uh, to discuss like his book, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Dr. Andrew Hoff is, he is an author. He's also a former uh, EcoHealth Alliance Vice President and senior scientists, if you don't know who EcoHealth Alliance is, you should do your homework before you come back into the next space. That is all very interesting. You start to put together this uh, syndicate, if you will. And my whole purpose of presenting this to you uh, was hopefully to 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 show you more of a of a jig the the top of the box of the jigsaw puzzle. For those of you who have lived through the Russian hoax, right, and lived through Sean Hannity uh, night after night after night after night after night, creating like whiteboards of the same information about the Russian hoax collusion, right? All the different players. I mean, I felt like I was in an FBI war, war room every night of my life as I was trying to keep up with this. And there were just there were too many missing pieces, and there were there was there was too much conjecture and speculation, which is what you're going to hear uh, in some other spaces around these conversations. But I'm very proud of the fact that 
and humbled and honored that we have people who have actually been there since the beginning, beginning with the Bush administration regarding bioweaponry and pandemics who are in our spaces. I'm very humbled by that. So as my disclaimers go, the views, opinions, and information brought through my spaces are not always necessarily reflective of those of Clear Talk Media or me, Monica Matthews is your host, or my co-hosts. I, I would extend that to them as well. Uh, we're all here to learn just like you are, right? And, and this has changed the trajectory of the globe, not just our country. And so... You know, between President Trump making his rounds again on, you know, the vaccines are still the greatest things ever and I've saved millions of lives and that whole political circus that's beginning now for 24. And those of you who are vaccine injured have loved ones who are vaccine injured. You're paying attention to the various reports. You're following people who are in the know. Uh, you're coming into my space and our spaces and, and learning about who's really behind these things and why. Right. The last episode we did uh, was bio uh, surveillance. Right. We live in a police state. I mean, we know that, and and we 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 joke about it, right? But we still buy our technology, and we still wear our little watches that measure every single aspect of our lives, and we are part of the campaign that some would say was initiated to keep us safe. You heard that in this space also. Others would say, that be damned. That is fundamentally, foundationally false. So you're going to have to decide for yourself. But what I would like to offer you in these spaces, and Dr. Huff has been very generous with his time, and today he was called away um, for an emergency you know, professional uh, thing that he's dealing with, and that's fine. But like I said, we wanted to honor you and your time, your commitment to be here with us by recapping some things that we've gone over over the past few days. And for those of you who have missed, maybe you can glean from that. These shows are also up if you subscribe to my podcast in any download medium. You can subscribe there as well as I have posted them here on my Twitter feed. So you can also uh, find those, and they are recorded as you can see uh, today. But my, my intention is to bring the, the box cover for you to be able to put pieces together and discard pieces that don't belong to this puzzle called COVID-19. So please follow me if you're not already. Follow my co-host as well and uh, Texas Lindsay for sure. Uh, welcome to my co-hosts and Christopher I uh, hope you guys are doing well, and uh, welcome to the end of yet another exciting week <laughs> above ground. That's always good. Um, I think I'm going to start with Lindsay. <laughs> God bless you, girl. So we've had no, so my my internet has been like my wires to my internet have been cut twice in the past week. So that's interesting, right? Especially when we're talking about this. Dr. Huff in the first episode, well, actually in other spaces that we've, I've hosted him, he went over, you know, kind of the disaster, the nightmare that he and his wife and his whole family lived through uh, as he was bringing this information forward. And, uh, and he has promised that we're going to sit down and go over more of that, especially where his wife is concerned, 
um, you know, it, it had it was a family affair with uh, with being terrorized by some powers that be. Um, and Lindsay certainly had her share of issues. Anytime you're dealing with whistleblowers and you're going up against big pharma or the military industrial complex, um, you know, it, life gets interesting. It, it can, you know, I mean, we've seen a few people, um, you know, um, not make it to, to today over the past few months who are very tightly uh, connected to things like COVID-19, FTX, um, you know, uh, the drama, the theater playing out over there in Ukraine called the proxy laundering war. So, that, you know, there, there are a lot of things right now. The truth is coming out. So these are very dangerous times. Um, but you know what? That doesn't mean that the truth should not prevail. So that's why we're here. Lindsay, I'm going to go to you first. I know you got booted from the space last time and then blocked and could not come back in. So that was a rodeo. Uh, but, you know, you're familiar with Dr. Huff's work. You, you were here at least for the entire first episode and part of the second. So what are some of your uh, takeaways from from both of those episodes? If we could start with you, welcome. And thanks so much for making the time to be here today. Thank you, Monica. You're so professional. I love listening to you start off spaces. And nobody does it quite like you that I've seen on Twitter so far. So thank you for the intro. Yeah, it was very wild last time. So I manage multiple accounts uh, for um, organizations that um, I do contract with, uh, that I contract, I do contract work with, I should say. And um, when we were in the space last time, I got a message at the top of my screen and I tried to remove it, but I tapped it. So it, it logged me out of the space that we were in at that time and took me to the other account and just switched over. So it removed me from the space. So when I went back, it would not allow me to rejoin. It was so wild. It just kept saying spaces are unavailable. And I checked. I'm like, okay, well, everyone's speaking and on the panel, they all follow me. I follow them. It's not like a block issue. And so let me just, I even deleted my app and reinstalled it. <laughs> it still didn't work. Cleared my cache. I did everything. So really bizarre, but not the first time I've seen something like that happen. Um, I just, I just thought it was ironic. And I wondered if anybody that tried to join your space wasn't able to get in and wondered if it was um, deamplified for some reason. Well, we know the reason, but there's still some bad actors, I think, um, at play at Twitter. But um, thankfully, I was able to log back in towards the end from one of the other accounts. But I and I could join other spaces too. It was only only the spaces um, with with Huff the other day. So really bizarre. But um, yeah, so I I worked with um, Dr. Huff for about three months straight, night and day, and I still was in the corporate world doing my my day job. And he asked me for help, um, on getting his story out. So I was like, well, I still have a, um, a, a job that I'm, <laughs> I'm doing, but I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And, um, and then when I'd wrap up work stuff, I would, I would have to leave for meeting work meetings and stuff with clients. And then I'd come back and, and jump on the phone with him and work on whatever we were doing that day. Um, mainly it was coordinating with journalists from all over the world, um, like publications like Welt, I think Welt is one of the number one largest, it's not number one, but it's one of the top three largest um, news publications in Germany. Then there was a large science publication in Spain. Then there was another journalist out of Bulgaria. Then um, we talked to journalists in Australia and the UK and literally 
huge publications around the world. But only a handful were wanting to cover the story back in February, March in the United States. And one of those people was Glenn Beck. He, um, his team did a lot of due diligence because you can't just um, read someone's tweets and expect that everything is, is accurate. They had to make sure that Andrew was who he said he was. Um, I, I also vetted Andrew before I jumped in. I didn't want to just... Um, you know, agree to let my life be taken over by a total stranger. I had to verify that he was who he said he was, um, which is very true. But, you know, you just can't take everything at face value these days. But <laughs> and I see I see Charles Rixie in the audience, too. So Rixie, uh, me, Rixie and Huff were working on putting together some um, funding together for to show how all of these scientists that that originally said it was a lab leak um, and how they changed their story after that conference call with Fauci back in January, 2020. And we, we followed the money and found that there was a massive amount of money going to every single scientist. All of their grants significantly increased one increase. I think like 344% and that was uh, Christian Anderson and I made a little graphic about it and published it on on, on Twitter. And the, within minutes, Christian Anderson blocked me. <laughs> Instead of trying to dispute it, he just blocked me. I was like, well, this is the first time I think I, I've been blocked uh, back then. But um, it was, it's funny how you, when you uncover these situations and this information, um, you know, if, if something wasn't true, you would want to defend it. You wouldn't just want to block block somebody but i guess when you can't defend yourself you just have to shut them down but it's funny because everybody else could see it just not him i would want to know what somebody's saying about me if i were them but um but there's a there's so many there's so much to be uncovered with all of the money trails involved and um fauci i found a clip the other day where he was talking about how when he first started off he had he was in charge of like a couple million dollars in grants back in 1984 and now it's over three billion dollars so he controls is there three or or three or five billion dollars the purse strings for nih and one thing that people need to understand if they don't already is that if you make fauci mad and you're a scientist your your career is essentially over because he controls the grants for all of the scientific research from the government so that that would include academic institutions that would include ngos they all apply for grants from the nih and if you get blacklisted by fauci um you're done you can't do your work anymore these grants are everything to the people trying to find answers trying to do research trying to do their jobs their careers so when people wonder why didn't more people come forward or why why won't these people just be brave because this is what they did this is what the, their whole livelihoods relied on this this man who had more power than any one individual should ever have i mean to be the mo- the highest paid government employee um in history in, in our government and then to have that much power um, I, I didn't quite understand it at first. I'm like, well, so what? He, they won't get money from the NIH. Big deal. Why don't they just get it from somewhere else? Well, 
Fauci has a lot of friends, like if, if it were the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that funds a lot of research, well, that, that would be Fauci's BFF. So they wouldn't get it there either. They just end up um, in this black hole, this abyss, and it makes their life very difficult where they're spending more time trying to find funding instead of being able to do their work. So um, that was fun going down that rabbit hole with Rixie. But Rixie is um, amazing because he's dedicated his life night and day to trying to find answers for this and find uh, the origin. And and he has some fun with it too. He'll put these graphics together and um, try to make, (laughs) makes it, makes it entertaining because this work can get really dark if you, if you don't try to find some laughter along the way. But um, absolutely. So, well, I'm happy to invite Mr. Rixie up, but I I was trying to be respectful of the fact that a lot of these folks have had to, um, ask for legal clearance before they're coming into my space. And, and I fully respect that and understand that. And also let it be known that there's nothing classified as far as I know, uh, being shared in these spaces. And, and that is something I'm extraordinarily cautious about. Um, and so that is not, that's not what we're sharing here, but we are sharing unclassified information and we are sharing information with folks, like you said, who have been there, you know, from the beginning in the Genesis who really do understand the full picture. And so I noticed that we had Dr. Um, Heider, uh, in here just a few moments ago, and I know that he's doing spaces, um, as well, but keep in mind, different people are covering different aspects of this because it is a multi-pronged beast. It's a, it's a Hydra. It's not just the Genesis, right? And so now we've got the fallout. (laughs) And like you said, just now follow the money trails. Well, that's what I said in this that I did today. And that if you're wondering why President Trump and you guys can get political if you want. I'm not going there right now. Um, but if you're wondering why he is still um, using words like they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're great, this is fantastic, we, they're, you, you know, everybody go get jabbed, whatever. Um, if you're wondering why he's still excited about it outside of the fact that he believes that he did the right thing as president at that time, and I'm not going to argue one way or the other, um, what I would suggest to you is that President Trump was not given all of the information. And I believe he's still not receiving all of the information. And so you're making decisions from behind someone else's paywall. And there's only a few reasons why people would not give you accurate intelligence. And it's either for money, control, or both. And so, you know, this whole thing goes way deeper and darker than most people realize that, you know, Dr. Heider and others are contending with the fallout, to be honest with you, of what's happening in people's physiology. Uh, So, and I respect that. And I know Michelle, I think, may be in our space as well. I'm not looking at my phone. Um, And she's being uh, shadow banned with her space that's coming up uh, either this evening or tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. You guys follow Michelle Peterson. Um, she's been on the quote front lines here with us and spaces and really helping people navigate, uh, the fallout of, of COVID. So, yeah, so there's, there's multiple things at work here and we're focused on, you know, our series and our episodes. And so Lindsay, thank you for that because it's important for people, you know, to, um, to remember that there's a, there's a financial incentive always there. Usually there's a financial incentive, and, you know, the, the most honorable men and women uh, will fall 
sometimes at the altar of mammon. It just happens, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, Mr. Rixie, welcome, sir. You're welcome to introduce yourself. If you're clear to speak, please do so. Um, you know, tell it. This audience may not be familiar uh, with you and your background, so you're welcome to go back to that. And, um, yeah, how's it going, sir? Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, uh, bef- bef- before I say who I, I am, I guess, because I really don't like to I mean, I'm just a random average person, but I, I want to specify for your audience something that I know 100% for a fact, which is that uh, President Trump was not told about most of these, most of the ties with Wuhan, most of the gain-of-function background dealing that was going on. He was not told. <clears throat> and uh, that was actually something that I discovered and that Congress learned from me, and they have since confirmed about a year and a half ago now that that it's true, that, and what I discovered was that one of the people who was preventing his administration from knowing this was his own science advisor, who was also the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is like the White House science guru, trying to know what, how to make what the rules of science are for the United States and how they're going to fund them. Um, he was in charge of that. And, I mean, I, I've even, I, I co-wrote an episode for Glenn Beck a year and a half ago where, like, he went into this in great detail. But the bottom line is that Fauci didn't tell President Trump about his uh, February 1st meeting that he's having. He didn't tell him about everything that he knew beforehand. And, I mean, even Trump, he he said a little bit of this himself in an interview with Sherry Markson from Australia um, in fall 2021 as well. But but the bottom line is, is that uh, Fauci worked with people to prevent uh, Trump and anyone close to him in his administration from knowing the exact details of this. And that is a fact. And I will probably be testifying to that fact at some point in the future. So, uh, I, so with that, as kind of a, a backdrop. Yeah. <laughs> who am I? <laughs> That's who a big am one. I? <laughs> who <laughs> Thanks am for I? dropping that grenade in our space. That's yeah, awesome. I, I was trying. Well, hopefully that got uh, people's attention because I, the biggest problem we're having right now is that there's so much has happened and you know whoever it is that's trying to prevent us from knowing all of this has done a very good job of, of keeping everybody separate so um so my name is, is charles rixie i was a marine for 15 years uh, and i worked with uh, chemical biological radiological and nuclear defense i was an instructor in our in our job field the marine corps and I spent eight years of my career as the chief, as the Seaburn chief for Marine Corps Embassy Security Group. So for all of our Marines that are 188 embassies and consulates, I was in charge of preparing them for situations exactly like COVID. And I just left the Marine Corps, I just left active duty in August of 2018. So um, this is all very fresh. and, And then later on after 
I became a member of Drastic, which is a group of uh, scientists and researchers who've basically been using the internet to figure out what happened and what caused this pandemic. Um, in, in fall of 2021, we released uh, an analysis and the documents themselves of a proposal that EcoHealth Alliance had submitted to DARPA that was ultimately rejected, but that basically um, laid out the exact recipe list of everything that we now see in this virus. So I, I, didn't, I didn't meet Andrew Huff until after that, but uh, ever since that point, I've been working with all the whistleblowers and with other people, uh, with frontline doctors, members of Congress. I, I spent some time working for RFK Jr. recently. So I've kind of been working in the background, but, but I, I've seen now that time is not on our side and we need, to, uh, we need to bring this to the public's attention sooner rather than later. So that's kind of why I'm taking more of an active role now. Excellent. I'm very honored to have you here, sir. Thank you very much. And since you're here, um, Ten, I know you have questions, and and I know you have comments, and I'm sure you have questions for Mr. Rexy. So I'm going to start uh, with you. Good afternoon. Hi, Doc. Um, <laughs> I want to call you Doctor Rixie, but you know, no, no, I don't. You've have, got you've you, got the skill. I know you sure. don't have the doctorate, but you've got the skill and the knowledge. You know, in you know the way that. Um, Dr. Huff talks you talks about you in his book. He is uh, very impressed with everything that you've done up there in in that Minnesota work that you guys were doing. Um, in, I guess in specific, I kind of want to ask the some some of the questions that we were, you know, kind of we kind of went over in the last couple of days about you know biosurveillance and you know trying to figure out what it is that you know the role of DHS and these organizations really is, you know, Dr. Huff, Dr. Huff talks about in his book, how, you know, com overcomplicated the mission for DHS began um, where the scope was so broad that it made it almost impossible to to kind of nail down and actually fund at the state level specific activities related to security did you want to kind of like talk about that a little bit uh, I, I can a little bit i did when i was still in active duty i, I did uh, quite a bit of interfacing with state personnel and i think it's definitely true that our um, our appetite has always um, been less than our than what we think we want and I, for me, since I came more from the, from the military side, there's a similar problem in that our government pretty much always just, the answer to every problem is to throw money at it. And that's not always the best solution. Because in the military, what it, what it causes is they, they throw money at problems and then they create they just slow down the process and it's just made everything incredibly, instead of being nimble, everything is a juggernaut in the government now. And so this notion that, that they were going to be able to balance um, food security and public health prevention and things, 
it, it was always, it was far too confident. But the real problem is that the fact that Fauci was at the center of it and he was actively working for a decade to minimize the risks associated with his work. And it was his work that was most likely to upset the apple cart for, for public health. And so we've come to the situation where the people who are supposed to protect us in the public health space have mostly just been doing all of the damage. And I think the public is going to see in the very near future that that, that is exactly what has happened here in this pandemic. Thank you very much. Um, the other the other question I had about um, the proposal that uh, DARPA had made related to diffuse. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh yeah. Um, so it was Eco Health Alliance had had put together this proposal, and there's a lot of talk about how it was this ridiculous plan to, to vaccinate bats with a live, well, not really alive, but, but trying to vaccinate bats um, to prevent SARS-like viruses that, that were dangerous to humans from, from jumping over and crossing species. And um, <clears throat> this, this was submitted in March of 2018 for DARPA's preempt program. But what, what really people need to understand is, is that about 80% of that proposal was basically just a continuation of what was already being funded at Ecoth Alliance by the NIAID and by U.S. aid, or basically the CIA so, and DOD. So DOD and intelligence money and some of our public health money was all being funneled to EcoHealth Alliance. And they were already doing a lot of the work that was described in their... In fact, they actually, about a month before we released our proposal, The Intercept released, I think it was The Intercept, that released um, FOIA documents from annual progress reports from two other um, grants that were ongoing with EcoHealth Alliance that were taking place in Wuhan. And in each one of those, there was an example of gain-of-function work that was identified after the fact and then um, just pushed under the table and hidden whenever the pandemic started. So the exact same personnel, so the same teams except for two additional small groups, it was all the exact same personnel that were going to be doing this diffuse work. And that is, that is concerning because they didn't really need $14 million more dollars to do the work. In fact, they didn't, they didn't even need any outside help. So there's no reason to assume that it wasn't being done just under different programs. And I think that people, their initial response when we leaked it was to say that, oh, well, this was never funded. 
but that that's uh, it's kind of a spurious argument because they they had already in other grants they'd already completed more than half of the work that would need to be done for it so um so i don't i don't know if there's like a specific question because i can i mean the documents were were given to me to leak so i'm, I'm pretty familiar with the how the process went so i can probably answer any questions you have any specific ones no, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and hand this over to Chris real fast, and um, let's let people kind of think about what you just said. And if we have some questions, we we'll, we might go to hands in a little bit. But hey, Chris, uh, could you just go ahead and uh, reset the room? Uh, Chris, can you hear me? I know Monica can't can't hear right now. Yeah. Maybe Chris can't either. Yeah, I'm think our, their space seems to be having a little bit of trouble right now. So, um, I guess we we can explore the you know this this issue with you know the documents that you were put in the position to leak. Um, what what can you tell us about you know the the impact as you saw you know the first information that you you know uncovered being released. How, you know, how did that go? Well, um, one thing that I can say is, is that it wasn't, that wasn't the original reason that I was contacted. I was actually, I was contacted because there was concern about something else. And uh, at some point in the near future, we'll, we'll discuss that. But, um, but once these documents were discovered, it became very clear that they took priority because they, I guess, from a legal perspective, they provide evidence of intent. And so, in any in any criminal proceeding, you have you know the mens rea and actus or actus reus, I think, where you have the the act itself, and then you have the desire to do the act and the mindset. That you, the reason behind why you did it. And it's, it's that piece, like uh, proving that intent, that is typically harder because it's, it's harder to find physical evidence of something that, of, of why you did something. And, but to me, these documents, their real value comes in the fact that they're evidence of intent to produce a virus that contains several qualities. And what are those big qualities? One of them is if you're in cleavage site, which makes the virus more transmissible, uh, more pathogenic, more virulent once it gets into your body. So all around it makes it worse. And Brixie, what kind mm -hmm. of, explain more about the fur and cleavage site and about what they actually use to make that more contagious as okay, in so, as in being the hiv component okay so well that was the there were four major um like pieces of evidence or, or suspicious things about the virus that that um that in my mind have really stand out they were from they were proposed in this proposal one of them was if you're in cleavage site one of them was um, trying to 
find a virus that can utilize what's called the DC sign pathway, which um, in short just means being able to infect dendritic cells in your immune system, which this is a, this is a pathway that is utilized by the HIV virus in particular. So there was those two things. And there was also, um, they were looking at testing interferon dysregulation. Interferon being signals that, that, that are sent from your cells to your immune system that tell it to turn on because there's some foreign pathogen inside the body. So in this case, if, and the reason this is in particular was interesting is because bats, their immune system does not work very efficiently. And so they carry a lot more viruses because their immune system doesn't cause an immune reaction nearly as strong as it does for ours, which is, that is why bats carry so many viruses. So that, and then the fourth thing is actually something that was shown by Alex Washburn and a couple other authors very recently, which was that this virus looks like it was constructed like different parts from different viruses put together in what's called a chimera. And so all four of those things are discussed. By all means, continue. You, you guys can go as long as you can hear the space, okay? And, and Tin is willing to co-host. And I, I know Lindsay has other things that she's obligated to do today. So as long as everyone else is willing to continue to go, you know, go for it. Um, and I want to thank you now for being here. And you can catch, we're going to put this, the previous space and this one together in a show so you can listen to it um, um, without interruption, okay? So if that happens, I just want to thank you in advance for being here. Uh, Ten can bring people up, so can Lindsay. I'm going to have to leave that at, uh, to their discretion. If, in fact, you do not hear from me or if you do not see my emojis, it means that I've been booted from my own space once again. Uh, Mr. Rixie, please continue, sir. I think I, the last thing I heard, uh, Ten uh, asked you a question. Would you guys please retweet the space as well was what I was trying to get to with a reset um, to retweet the space. If you are media and you are in this space and you utilize any portion of this space, I fully expect you to be a professional and credit my show, my media company, and this space. Thank you to Mr. George Webb for, uh, for behaving with great integrity. As a colleague, I appreciate that greatly, sir. So uh, yeah, if we could just do that, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. We were at with uh, Texas. Uh, you, you, uh, Sorry, Lindsay, you had uh, posed a question to Rixie. Could you go ahead and yeah. start from that? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to try to translate some of what um, Rixie says into layman's terms, just so that people can understand. One one thing about the um, burn cleavage site. So that is part of the cell that they were do they were using in the lab to make it more contagious, so that it, so that humans could contract it. If they had not done that then it the then there would not be a covid outbreak so that that's what one indicator that gave that made this known um, one of many indicators that made it known that this came out of a lab and what's interesting is that they used hiv as the contagion feature of this cell so there is an hiv component in the cell that makes it um 
makes it able to spread like it did as fast as it did. But, and viruses that come out of nature do not spread at the rate that COVID did. And it it was it was yeah. done and it was done and it was manipulated in this way. And it's just funny to me because of all the patents that Fauci has um, to treat HIV. So I, I think that there there's just too many things that connect back back to Fauci and HIV. It's just it's it's his thing. But um, I just wanted to explain what the Fern cleavage site was so that people understood and why that component is such a big deal and why it matters. So right. Rixie, I know you, you're more, um, you're better versed on this. So didn't, didn't mean to hijack you there. No, no, I, I it, it is important because the furin cleavage site in particular has been for three years, the, the primary point of contention when people are arguing over whether this virus is natural or not. And for the past year, pretty much ever since the diffuse proposal was released, so I guess a year and a half, I've been working to try and find the evidence that pieces this all together. Because what I've seen, <clears throat> what I've learned is, is that that HIV aspect to this is absolutely crucial. In fact, I believe that it, that it wasn't the furin cleavage site itself, but it was this link with HIV that caused Anthony Fauci to have that February 1st, 2020 meeting because he, he couldn't suppress the furin cleavage site forever. It's a well-known um, thing that, that makes viruses more contagious and it makes them more deadly if you get them. But the other three little bits and pieces, well, and there's more, but the other ones that, are, that look like they're pieces from a certain part of the, the HIV virus, those could not be explained away as easily. And so it seems pretty clear to me, I think I have enough proof um, that, like, I feel comfortable saying that the reason Anthony Fauci started all of this censorship was to divorce the tie between the coronavirus and HIV. Because the same day that the, there was an Indian paper that came out on January 31st, 2020, that highlighted these four pieces that looked like they were from HIV, it was the next day, within 24 hours, Fauci convened that meeting. And he didn't convene the meeting when he learned about the Fearing Cleavage site. And this is, this is what nobody has, has realized yet and what, I, what I've been researching. We know for a fact that Anthony Fauci, by February 1st, he had known about the Fearing Cleavage site for at least three weeks. Because when they... That one of the choices they had to make when finishing the prototype sequence for their mRNA vaccine at the NIAID was whether or not to retain that furin cleavage site. And they, and they have in peer-reviewed literature stated that they made that decision by January 13th. So that's a problem because it wasn't until January, 20, January 20th 
a week later, that China even admitted that it could transmit at all between humans. But Fauci didn't just stay silent then. Once he got together with all of his fellow scientists, the world's leading virologists, they decided as a group to not say anything until Proximal Origin was published in its final draft six weeks later. And I went back and looked, and those scientists that were all at that meeting published 33 papers and articles and never mentioned the Fear and Cleavage site, even though that is something that could have, if doctors and nurses had known about that, they would have been far more prepared to deal with an aerosol transmitting virus, and they weren't. So basically, they allowed it to spread. So, yeah. I, I just want to ask him real quick, uh, on aerosolization, what, what can you say about that and, and what were your impressions um, on how that research came together? Um, well, Really quick, Tim, before we pivot to that question, I want to, if, if I may interrupt, I'm so sorry to do this, but I just wanted to ask if Charles has seen the newly released unredacted emails that just came out on um, Fauci's communications from February the 1st on through early February with this group of folks as it related to the Furin? Um, I, I haven't seen the stuff today. I haven't yet heard from others who are looking at it that there's anything different than what came out um, well, did you see the about one a month ago? Fourth that were like out back, I think Becker News posted something and there was a link to all the emails. There was like 174 emails um, that were if published it, last week. If I haven't seen anything in the last 24 hours. I, I, I saw what I believe to be so, no, um, but I don't know yet if there's anything different in these that wasn't released, I think it was a month or two months ago, from a different source. Um, I can't remember his name, but it was a, basically it had unredacted versions of most of the emails, and I think it came from the UK, maybe. Yeah, and, and you may have already seen these, so this may be just new to me, um, but I... Um... I was reading them last night after I got back off the plane and one of the emails from February 4th, well, what happens on February the 4th, first of all, the, the February the 1st are talking about, they're panicking about this site and, and this mutation, the spike protein, protein mutation. February the 4th, there's dialogue going back and forth about Christian, who's the gentleman that's like, hey, this is about to hit the fan, right? Well, and, he, no, he says, hey, this definitely looks like a lab leak. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yep. And so, then the uh, there's multiple other people in there. You know, on February the fourth, that they they say there's sixty forty as it relates to the lab leak. Correct. So, yeah. Fauci knew these credible people were very much leaning towards a lab leak, and yes. so then there's a dialogue about in the interim how to spin it, how can we spin this to focus on natural transition or whatever. I'm not a scientist, but you get what I'm saying. Um, that right. to, to make the theory that it's coming from nature versus the lab. And Fauci suggests mice. Um, so I was curious about your thoughts if you've seen those emails. So at, at this point, like based on what I've heard so far, there's nothing in here that wasn't in the previous ones. Uh, I do have the benefit of, I, I've read 
about 130,000 pages of these. So I, uh, I'm pretty familiar with, with what's come out in the FOIA documents. And so, so you're right. I mean, all the way, all the way like through, even past this point, up until the, the publication of Proximal Origin, there's still this kind of discussion. But by February 4th, there was, in <clears throat> most of them, they kind of pivoted very quickly. And that's actually, <laughs> what's funny to me now is that, that I th I'm pretty sure I know why that is. And that's what I discovered two years ago. Um, but unfortunately, I had two followers back then instead of like 24,000. So I couldn't really get anybody's attention except for Congress. So, but, so here's the real story. So what happened between the first and the fourth? And everything that's come out says, shows us that th their doubts were still strong and no evidence. Like, we see there's not one mention <laughs> of actual evidence that could have caused this when they're talking behind the scenes. So that should tell you something. Because if there was, we would, they would have talked about it. And moreover, they would have pointed out this evidence at some point in the three years since. But the problem is, is that the, one of the things that they wanted, which re revolved around pangolins, um, that turned out to be, well, we're pretty sure that the, the sequences were fabricated. Um, and, and there's a whole bunch of scientific controversy behind that. But, but there's a reason why we're not hearing about that now. And it's because that wasn't the answer. Um, but the real shift um, I believe came from a second meeting that was held this time on February 3rd but instead of being held with you know all of these international scientists the people who were there were the were the authors of the, the Proxim Origin paper and many of the implicated scientists so Peter Daszak, Ralph Barrick um uh, Ian Lipkin, Stanley, oh, gosh. Kristen Drosten, Kristen Drosten. Like, so there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people. Some holdovers from the first meeting, but this one was two days later, and it was called by um, Kelvin Drogemeyer, who was the presidential science advisor and the chair of the OSTP, and literally, and so. It, U.S. Right to Know in, in December of 28, or 2020 had, had published a big FOIA dump of 83,000 pages of, of Ralph Barrick stuff. And they and had let's discovered... Explain, let's explain for people that um, aren't aware who, who these names are. So Ralph Barrick worked at the UNC Chapel lab, and he is the one who is really kind of like the lord of gain-of-function research that came up and was working alongside the NIH and Moderna at UNC Chapel Hill trying to come up with a vaccine in case there was this coronavirus outbreak. And so he created Correct. this whole virus in his lab. But then when the moratorium took place during Obama's administration and gain-of-function research was outlawed, they moved the work that Ralph Barrick had started with Moderna and NIH 
um, over to China to to circumvent the block in place for the gain of function moratorium that was that was done. So um, right. I just want to explain that. And then Peter Daszak is the president of Eco Health Alliance, which was the lab that they allowed to take this work and because they're not a government organization, they were pretty much the front organization um, orchestrating all of this gain of function work in and collaborate collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So I just yeah. wanted to explain that. So people that don't know these names and who they are, um, what happened there. Okay. Right. Sorry. <clears throat> no. Um, so this is where it's interesting because in the February 1st meeting, there was no, representatives of the U.S. government besides Fauci and Francis Collins, uh, the, his, technically his boss and the, the head of the NIH. They were the only two U.S. government representatives at that meeting. And two days later, they had this separate teleconference. And the stated mission of this, of this teleconference was to come up with a plan to combat misinformation regarding the origin of the virus. And this was in their, this was in the USA, uh, this is in the US Right to Know's document pile. I, I think that just because there were so many pages and because this particular aspect of it, you, you couldn't control F to, <laughs> to find it. You literally just had to see it as you were scrolling through the pages. But I did because I went through every single page. And so I found where they were discussing this meeting that was going to take place. And, and then I saw that Tony Fauci was one of the speakers for this event. And the other speakers were um, like the hosts, the National Academies, and then Kelvin Drogemeyer, the Presidential Science Advisor, who had been the one to restart the... He had been the one to sign off on the uh, gain-of-function the end of the gain-of-function ban. And then the third person was Chris Hassel, who was the chair of the Secret Council, whose responsibility it was to look at any like gain-of-function type um, experiments and judge whether or not they should be done. Those are the three people, and their goal, their stated mission, was to counteract misinformation. Okay, so, and so, and, and one thing we I think we're leaving out here as well is based on my knowledge. Again, you you saw these emails way previously clearly, so you this this is not news to you. But maybe to some of the listeners or the the folks that are in this space, maybe they're just now seeing these emails for the first time, and maybe some of them have not yet seen the emails. So I'll post it up into the nest um, for them to be able to click on some of these emails. Um, and uh, but one of the things that's clear in these emails is there is a representative um, from the Gates Foundation in all of this communication. Yes, and from the FBI and um, from Johns Hopkins public, like basically their coronavirus team, their public health team. So all of the main actors, including a lot of people who were involved with the event 201 three months earlier, were like they had, they jumped, they just sat right down the same seats and started going. And what's interesting, what I thought was interesting, 
something else I, I didn't find until a much more recent FOIA uh, drop was that I, I discovered that Tony Fauci was actually speaking for his part of that teleconference from his vaccine research center, which is the group of scientists that was working with Moderna to create the, the vaccine. So those were the people, including his lieutenant, Barney Graham, who, who, who made the decision to keep the furin cleavage site in the vaccine. He was there in their, in their building at, for that meeting on February 3rd which by then had been three weeks, more than three weeks, since they'd finished the sequence and sent it off to Moderna. Um, so I'm going to go to Red Pill real quick since he has his hand raised. See if he has a, a quick question. So you want to unmute your mic and ask? Yeah, uh, good evening to everybody. Um, uh, first of all, uh, Monica and Tim Fall, fascinating and informative space. So thanks for, for setting this up. I've got a couple of questions and they're directed to Charles. Um, who uh, whose knowledge is just so impressive. Um, it's really to do with um, the sort of nature and possible weaponisation of, uh, of the virus itself. There's so many different things that are floating around on the internet and I think there's a great opportunity here to find out uh, from Charles uh, the efficacy of some of those things. The first one is that there's a lot of talk that the um, uh, you talked earlier on about the uh, the virulent nature of the um, of the vaccine. Oh, sorry, of the um, the virus, and uh, it was virulent at different levels. There's a lot of talk on the internet that uh, the real target was uh, genetically based, and it was targeted at uh, the Chinese population. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And the second question is the uh, the vaccine uh, has carried a, um, a a graphene content, and there's a lot of talk that the graphene is actually uh, programmable and has been programmed for later switch on for uh, different effects to manifest themselves. Um, at different stages and what have you. So those are two very, very uh, important questions, I think, if we've got Charles here, to be able to give us an indication of uh, whether they, there is any sort of merit to those uh, two internet buzzes or internet rumours. Um, so I was wondering if you'd be um, able to answer that. Charles, I can take the second question if you want to take the first one. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, the... I mean, I know, I know, and I'm very familiar with Dr. Kevin McCann, who's a neuroscientist who's looked into the, into the, he's actually gone through the vials of, of the vaccine and he's found nothing in terms of, of graphene. He, what, what he has found is that many of them were blanks. But um, as far as your, your first question, um, oh crap, I just, I just had a brain fart. Oh man, can't remember it now. Do you um, want me to repeat oh, that for you, Charles? Well, yeah, just just remind me of the, yeah. the topic of the first uh, one. It's just about the targeting. Um, into oh, yeah, oh, the race targeting, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, so now in the DoD, I do know that that since the 80s, 
the, the notion of, of being able to tar uh, manipulate viruses so that way that they can target certain races is something that has been researched by, by the United States, by, by the, then the Soviet Union, by Israel, by other countries. So the concept is certainly a very real concept that is investigated. Um, nobody will admit it, of course, but now <clears throat> what I would say is that the fact that it popped up in China, in Wuhan, it certainly makes it possible that there was a, an attempt to like make it appear like it was China's fault. But what I can say is that the, it doesn't appear targeted in that way. Because if it was, then they failed. And <clears throat> so we don't know if it was targeted and they failed because there was enough exposure to SARS-like coronaviruses within the population that, that it, that it couldn't, um, or that it was protective somehow. Um, and I think that, I think that is part of it, but, I, but I, in this particular case, I, if it was, if it was targeted towards a certain race, the places where it's bitten the worst have not been in Southeast Asia. It's been everywhere else, <laughs> especially in the West and the Northern hemisphere. So, um, do I do I believe that this was? No. Do I believe that it's possible? Yes, but I don't believe that in this case that it was. Thank you, Charles. Charles, the the thing I think that enables those sorts of rumours, and I'm glad you've squashed both of them. That's that's brilliant. But I think the thing that enables those sorts of rumours to continue, or one of the things, is the uh, complete close down of communications out of China. So what we see on the news is we see the massive Absolutely. lockdowns and what have you. But so therefore, when there's a rumour like that, people then think that it has real power and real efficacy. But um, I think now, now that I, for me personally, now that I've heard you uh, speak, I think you know we can dispense of those two rumours. And that's been a massive, massive help to me in terms of understanding exactly what's going on. So thank you. Thank you for answering my questions. Well, I, I absolutely agree, sir. I think that uh, and from my perspective, that all of that is part of the misinformation campaign that has taken place. Because what, we, what they really don't want is for people to be thinking about you know, the things that I'm talking about, which are that actually... The, <laughs> the government, the, the, the intelligence community, the Department of the Defense, um, that we, they've been trying to minimize their part in all of this since the beginning. And so it's been interesting because whether it's people that argue that there's no virus or people that say that it's graphene or, or that it's race targeted, um, the bottom line is, is that it's it's preventing the discussion that really matters because there's we do have evidence but it's so hard because even like myself like i'm part of drastic and i've been investigating this for more than two years and and you know people in congress know of our work but it's so hard to break through because at first it was the censorship and ironically in the last couple of weeks <laughs> It's been because it's, 
it's been because the doctors have had that kind of lifted. And there's so many doctors who are so ready <laughs> to be talking openly about this that it, it's kind of drowned us out. And um, so, but even to that end, I think it's possible that that if you were the intelligence community, that you might find it worthy of, of you know, letting that out to prevent or to just drown out the noise from anything else. Um, so I, I really wanted to get back to this, this subject and, and there's a reason for it on, on the aerosolization because but, Tim, with gain of function, we didn't answer, I'm sorry. We didn't answer his uh, second question. I was going to address yeah. that real quick before we go, we'd be back to aerosols if, if that's all right. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Two part. And it was the, the graphene thing. This gets, this gets brought up in so many spaces and so many, um, comments on Twitter. So uh, Dr. Ryan Cole is a friend of mine, and he's a pathologist, and he did examine uh, vials of the vaccine under his microscope in his lab. And um, out of all the vials he looked at, there was not um, any graphene found in any of the vials. So the, the whole um, theory about microchips being able to program and how that could be impacted by 5G there, there's no evidence of that when he looked at it. So um, I, I've heard that so many times in so many places, but um, if, if it were there, I'm pretty sure he would have found it and, and alerted people uh, about it. He's a very honest person that just wants to get to the, get to the truth, just like um, many of us do. So um, just wanted to, to take that one. Thank you, uh, Texas, uh, for clarifying that. I did pick, I yep. did pick that up from uh, Charles when he, uh, uh, responded. I think that's the first opening uh, statement that he made, but it did require clarification, and uh, that was very helpful. I think, from my point of view, and not to labour any points here, but I'm now going to take this from here and make sure that any of those rumours, when I see them and what have you, I can correct them. And I think that's one of the things that we should do. We've got a wonderful source of probative information here from Charles. And what we should do is take that from this space and make sure that we cut down with these sorts of rumours and what have you. And that was the reason and purpose for my question. But thank you very much to you, Texas, and thank you very much to you, Charles, as well. And thank you, Monica, for allowing me to speak. Thank you. I'll drop down to listener to give you more space now. Thank you. Sorry, Ten. Let's talk about those aerosols. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's not just aerosols in general. It's just the, it, it's actually related to the specific um, gain of function research and deployment into, you know, animal populations as as covered in the book. Right. Um, and, and the reason that we want to have that discussion is directly related to why it is that this, you know, could be so effective in, in um, transmission because a natural pathogen given its natural spread rate is is generally low and the level or number of people that are infected over a period of time. And an aerosolization is not just um, a sneeze or something of that nature. I mean, I'd like uh, Charles to kind of, you know, elaborate on that because I don't, I don't think that people understand um, the nature of the um, militarized version of aerosolization, which requires specific profit processes. And just Tim, just so you know, I did um, post that up in the nest. 
um, the link to the 174 emails that are being referenced uh, in here um, for folks who may have not seen those yet. It's up there unredacted. Thank you very much. Charles, did you want, did you want to tackle that or we, we could move on to something yeah, else? Yeah. Um, so, um, so for me, uh, being, I mean, I rewrote the curriculum for our, our school and I taught our officers and our basic students and so, and aerosolization of something is incredibly important from, from a bioweapon perspective because most pathogens are not um, necessarily dangerous enough in, in nature to be able to cause the kind of damage that you would want, or the kind of debilitation that you would want to cause. From a military perspective, with a biological weapon, you typically don't want to have a highly lethal weapon because, to be honest, it's messy. Um, it, it's much easier and much more effective, usually, to create something that simply just makes people sick to the point where they're unable to do their job. But it's, it's, it's easier to hide and pretend that it's natural if it's not killing 50% of the people that it touches. And w when something becomes aerosolized, that means that instead of being in a droplet that falls to the ground when somebody sneezes or exhales, it's light enough that it's able to stay suspended in the air for a period of time, and that within these little droplets can be virions. And <clears throat> one of the best things about an aerosolized anything, whether it's a medicine or, or a virus, is that inside your lungs, you're bypassing most of your immune system. So it takes much lower number of virions to produce a symptomatic or an effective dose than if it was going through your nose where there's all the hair and the mucus and everything else. So just from a, like everybody knows, like everybody on the defense side understands this, and so when we saw the, the fact that this virus didn't respond very much to all the lockdowns and the masking and everything, it was very clear to me that it almost had to be a highly effective aerosol virus because that's the only way that it could spread. And the fact that the, fact that the flu disappeared, um, to me... What it tells me is that, yes, that's exactly what you would expect if you were using flu, um, like, uh, measures to, to prevent transmission, but not fighting a flu virus. <laughs> if it's not droplet and fomite, and it's actually transmitting via aerosol, then it doesn't matter um, how much of you implement of social distancing, because you can walk out of a room, somebody who's infected, and then somebody else an hour later, with nobody else inside, an hour later can walk in that same room and get infected by the cloud of virus particles that are still left from the previous person. Now, that is the only concept that really matters. It's, it's not about space and distance, it's about time. Because even our masks in the military that have filters and, and everything, <clears throat> they're not 100% effective forever against an aerosolized particle. 
because there's still space around the a face right where the mask gets to seal it you can you can get a little bit of escaping so even with our masks we don't stay in a contaminated environment like that for a long time unless we are fully encapsulated so and the fact that this virus was is so effective at aerosol transmission is incredibly concerning because the only two the most contagious previous viruses in human history have been um, the respiratory ones have been measles and RSV and they were both they, they both transmit the aerosol as well but coronaviruses have never been this efficient in this way so I agree 100% that, that the fact that that they wanted to like artificially allow these little spike nanoparticle things to be aerosolized to, to, to produce a reaction in these bats. I think that's a, that's very concerning because, because you don't really know what's going to happen when you, when you do that. Yeah. I, I, the, the part that I was looking at was there was uh, evidence of um, hydrophobic qualities in the spike proteins in some of the molecular research that was Absolutely. being done. And I was, I was like, whoa when i saw that because um hydrophobic qualities are just they're just not common in general in a lot of viruses i hate to um interject real quick i have to jump off i have another um meeting that's scheduled and i just wanted to say thank you so much to monica and ten and rixie and and chris everyone for um hosting the space and for um allowing the conversation to to happen y'all are such great hosts so thank you so much and um i will see you all in the next the next space hey bye y'all yes thank you so much Lindsay, for everything you've done this afternoon and we look forward to seeing you again um with that i think i'm just gonna i'm gonna go over to one of our hands here and uh let's see steven steedle haven't seen you for a little bit how are you doing Hey, good. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, I actually had a question for Charles, and one of them was uh, just kind of uh, impressed on me uh, hearing him just talk now. Uh, Charles, is is there any other virus that has naturally occurred uh, that has um, similar has held similar airtime and duration uh, that you were just speaking about? Right. So th- this has really been the the crux of, of my argument for a long time. And the answer is no. <laughs> There's nothing else close. It, part of the problem is that all of this evidence has been coming forth, and every time a piece of it does, the the, the opposing scientists who are, who are claiming a natural origin will hyper-focus on that and try to attack it and undermine it. And the problem is, is that that ep- evidence is not in isolation. It exists with all these other pieces of evidence. And this is a perfect example of it. Because no, the reason why it stood out to me so early is because it was so obvious. We had never in human history, globally, done social distancing and and lockdowns and everything. And what we learned, what we should have learned, is not that, you know, everything is, is fake and, you know, there must be some other... It's all just a charade. No, what we learned is is that things that work for flu actually can work. And when we reduce them, uh, the flu comes back. But 
we were never dealing with the flu. And the problem is, is that they, uh, the scientists understood that, but they didn't want to talk about it. And obviously, the best reason that they wouldn't want to talk about it is because it would highlight the fact that it isn't a normal thing that we see. And like the, the hydrophobicity that was just mentioned, that means that that the little pieces of the spike are, are trying to... It, it doesn't like the, the environment that it's in, and it's constantly looking for something to latch hold and grab onto. And the inserts that are inside the genome, all of them are heavily glycosylated and hydrophobic. So, and they're all at very specific points where they're most accessible for the human immune system to see it and, and reach out and be attracted to it. So, yes, all of these things, when you look at them, no virus in human history has ever been able to infect 28 out of 55 human tissues. None. There's no virus that I've ever seen that has a furin cleavage site that has a, an ORF, which is one of the other parts of it, that, that messes with your body's interferon response, but that also has a super antigen right next to the furin cleavage site, whose source, like what that does, typically for bacteria, it, that overstimulates your immune system. Now, why would a natural virus have both interferon dysregulation, so it, it does, it tells, at the same time it's telling your body to not react with your immune system, it also has a super antigen that when your body does react, it will overreact. It, it's, it's antithetical in the natural world that you'd have those two things in the same virus because it's two completely different types of interaction with the body. So that's fat. That's fascinating. So, so yeah, real quick, Charles, um, in your, in your opinion, uh, from, from everything that you've seen and, uh, as you so poignantly laid out, uh, the unique features of something that appears to be by design, how specific do you think the architects, um, of this virus, uh, planned these particular features or, or, do you think this was more of a of a an or Do you think that these features of the virus were more accidental in design? Well, I I think that scientists often think they know more about something than they really do, and so I, it's definitely true that they may. I don't want to give them, I don't want to give whoever may have made this virus too much credit, but at the same time, um, the, they knew about each of these things for a very, very long time. Very long time. So, for instance, superantigens that I just mentioned. Superantigens have been weaponized inside of typically bacteria. And they've been part, they were part of the U.S. and other countries' offensive biological weapons programs in the 50s and the 60s. So, so superantigens have been incredibly well understood for a very long time. And so when, a, when an SEB sequence shows up, an analog sequence shows up, and the furin cleavage site is part of it, 
And you've, those two things are bas- they're overlapping in the most crucial part of this virus. And then on the other side of the cleavage site is something that targets the human sodium channels in the lungs. Um, that has never been seen before in nature. So either this virus got incredibly lucky or these scientists were messing around with things and unfortunately for them, uh, what, what I've been doing for the last year has been going through all of the research. I've, I've read through like 1,500 research papers just this year trying to, to, for each of these pieces, show what was known, how much was known, and then more importantly, why didn't they say anything about this fact that they understood these things? Because everything that we've discussed, every part of the genome that we've discussed, was still in the, was retained in the spike protein. And it wasn't by accident. Like, they understood what these pieces mean. Because they've been doing, building vaccines this exact way for decades. So, what we're seeing is not a vaccine. I want, I want people, like, from my experience, there's a lot of rumors about what this might be. I don't think that's possible. Because when I went back and looked at all these other vaccines, first I realized they always take out the furin cleavage site. Whether it's flu, whether it's HIV, whether it's RSV, SARS, or so SARS didn't have really one, but MERS, they always mutate or remove the furin sequence. Always. Until January 1st of 2020, when two different groups did it. The VRC Moderna, and two days later, Pfizer. So, that had never happened before. In fact, Philip Dormitzer, the president of, of Pfizer's division that, was, that made the viruses, I have on video in 2014 stating unequivocally <laughs> during a gain-of-function conference that they would never retain a furin cleavage site in a flu vaccine. Why? Because you don't want a, a vaccine to be able to transmit to all these different cell tissues around the body. And Ralph Baird was literally sitting next to him at that conference. So, so they knew. And right now, my biggest challenge is getting people to understand that they knew before all of this started. And so the response that has taken place ever since has been wrong. And I don't know why they did it wrong, but I know that they know that they did it backwards. Charles, so as the layman guy who here, who has always sucked at science, okay, um, I want to kind of dummy this down to a point real quick, okay? And I'm saying that literally dummy it down my level, okay? What you're saying is the moment they saw the chemistry of what was in front of them with this virus and based on the email communication where the Furin you know, um, site is present and they recognize and know that, they at basically Jump Street, February 2020, probably January 2020, um, just ignoring the, the 2019 things, twenty you know, rumors from the past, whatever, okay? Um, just looking at this right now, 2020, 
they absolutely knew this was not of nature or should have known. I, I should word that different. They should have known at that point that this was not of nature. I think I think he's looking for the question. Oh, 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 I think I muted myself. Um, okay. Can you hear me? Now? Okay, so so I was like you. Uh, I, I like I I didn't know about biological weapons, but I never in a million years expected that after I left the Marine Corps that this was going to be a thing that I might come across. And I didn't really know the science. And so it's only after reading so much science, so going through so many papers, that, I mean, it took forever to get to the place where I, where I, I was able to start knowing enough where I could draw some conclusions and, and start asking the questions. But I can tell you unequivocally that I don't know why no one has ever asked Fauci when he first learned about the Fearing Cleveland site. Because it doesn't matter what his answer is. Um, he, it, it exp- what, whatever he will say will expose something that the public doesn't know yet. Because what they're going to learn, he knew what it was. He knew three weeks before that meeting that everybody has always talk, talked about. Three weeks before he, he had to know, because that in their own peer-reviewed journal articles, the main thing, main decision that they made that was different. The, 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 the biggest decision they had to make was whether or not to keep the Fear and Cleavage site. And even Barney Graham, the person who made the decision, said it was it was out of the norm. But nobody's ever asked him. And because once you open that door, when I went back and read, it, it, I only, I, I've only gone through about 30 previous vaccine um, like prototypes that were built in different things. But they always did. In fact, the other thing I discovered is that the three other what's so-called HIV inserts they are also, when you go back and look at the HIV vaccines that were created, including in the last couple of years, not only do they always remove the fear and cleavage side from them, but these specific epitopes are almost always removed. So the notion that they, that they, the notion that they didn't recognize what they were looking at in 2020 is stupid because they're, <laughs> There's, in fact, the pro- part of the problem is that there's an entire class of drugs of antivirals called fusion inhibitors that basically don't exist in the United States, even though China and other countries have shown they've developed fusion inhibitors that can be taken before you ever get sick or in the first stages that effectively kill, pre- prevent this virus in s- and they found ones that work for SARS and the other coronaviruses, MERS and SARS-2, or COVID-19. And that also work for HIV. And why is that? Because away from the furin cleavage site, on another part of the spike, is a fusion protein that naturally is very close to the same type of thing on HIV, on dengue fever, 
on a couple other viruses. And so one of the authors of the Proximal Origin paper that was used to argue against the idea that it was natural, he had helped co-invent the first drug based off this idea. And it was based off of the idea that there was this homology, this, this sameness like between the HIV and the original SARS virus in the, in the protein. So he invented, he helped invent this class of drugs. But then in order to, but if they went in that direction and they, they drew attention to it, it would naturally draw attention to the fact that it had other similarities to HIV as well. And I believe in my heart of hearts that Fauci didn't want anybody, he didn't want anything to do with this HIV connection because it would expose the fact that they knew from the beginning that it could not be natural. Well, this is talked about in the emails that were unredacted, right? There's this, is, this is mentioned about the HIV connection and how they, and I, I believe, I'll have to go back and read the emails, but I do recall that this is talked about and how they, they wanted to distance or downplay that connection. Exactly. Which is why I found it interesting because isn't it that they found that connection um, in mice? Well, there's more than one. There's more than one part of the spike genome that is similar to HIV. The fusion protein is naturally close. But the other pieces are, are not. <laughs> are not remotely close. And so the fact that they appeared in the spike protein... And not only did they appear, but they appeared at the very end of these, uh, of these like, little loops. They're at the most exposed part to where they're most likely to run into, um, you know, human tissues. And the, the statistical probability of these pieces magically appearing in this other virus that it can't recombine with and being at the exact perfect spot to be able to utilize um, certain receptors and get into your immune cells. It's insane. Um, Charles, it, it, previously they have, they took the farin, um, the, you know, the farin side out, right? On, like, as you mentioned, is that what, is that what differentiates between, um, you know, a, a, a vaccine and a bioagent? Yes. It's one of the main things. Absolutely, because you would never, you would never keep, in fact, they have no justification to have kept it in the vaccine because it should never have been put into the virus to begin with. But if it was, that same NIH vaccine research center that had seen dozens of furin cleavage sites had always removed them because if you, <laughs> you don't want a vaccine be to be traveling around your body and able to, to transmit all these different boundaries and doing things, it's, you, it causes problems. You want your immune system to respond to it, create antibodies, and move on. And that's, so yes, they, the, the, what, what tells me that this is not a vaccine is the fact that it, it was in there. But what scares me, and what should scare everybody, is that they saw these things too, and they kept them in their vaccine for the first time ever, and we don't know why. 
And so then when they publicly stated that they had no they had no idea that the spike protein transfers to other parts of the body, breaking the brain, the brain, blood, uh, the you know, the brain wall, the heart, you know, the ovaries, those kinds of things. At that point, because they knew that this that the Farron um, site was still in there, they were publicly lying. Yes, they were publicly lying and it gets worse because not only did they retain it, but they took the spike and wrapped it in a lipid nanoparticle that on its own can transverse the blood-brain barrier and other barriers. So even if they didn't keep the furin site in there, it was, it was still going to be able to transfer through tissues that it shouldn't have been able to. We only have like 30 minutes left, and I know Monica has been having some tech issues. So we, I do want to go to a couple of hands, and we brought some people up here. So um, let's go to Samaritan Project. Go ahead. Hello. Hey, Charles, <laughs> before we go too much further, Charles, in the background, there's some kind of motorized device running. So go ahead. Uh, whoever's... Um, I'm no longer Samaritan Project. I'm using my full birth name because I'm running for Congress. I just want to get full disclosure for that. Okay. So, so you know, so you know, you know who I am. So, oh, Joshua, go ahead. Yeah, Joshua. Yes, that's my first name. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to come up and share this with you. I just came back from the doctor's office. So you're going to get like a thirty thousand foot aspect to this. And- 